mentors jump into mentoring relationships for a lot of different reasons. It may be because they had a mentor growing up. It could be because they know what it's like to not have a dad around. It could be because of something they saw in the news. It could be because they know that they can't commit to foster care, but could make a weekly mentor relationship work. All in all, mentors have something to give. That's what gives them the confidence to jump into mentoring. But there's a problem with this approach. Mentors can come into the mentoring relationship focused on what they have, what they can teach, what they bring to the table, what they're desiring for the relationship. It's good to have experience, skills, and desires and goals for the relationship, don't get me wrong. Rather than focusing on sharing their wealth of knowledge or imparting skills, effective mentors focus on meeting relational needs. Relational needs are the bedrock of mentoring relationships with kids from hard places. In this series, we're gonna be discussing relational needs in mentoring relationships with John Bauer, the lead pastor of Normandy Church in Dallas, Texas. Welcome back to the You Can Mentor podcast. My name is Steven, and I'm here with a special guest, John Bauer. How the heck are you? My friend, I'm well. I'm a lot better than that intro you tried to give earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm about COVID, COVIDed it out. That's a thing. Yes. But well, I'm, I'm doing well, man. I'm glad to be with you. Yes, you were just sharing about the liberation of your children, just just the difficulties of having... How many kids do you have? Three boys. Three boys. And so they're, they've been cooped up for months now. Months. And tell tell me what, what just happened. They're very libertarian. It's like they came with a come and take it flag on their backside. And <laughs> this cage bird's going to fly. I mean, they're just out and about. And we live in a neighborhood that have lots of kiddos. And we tried to keep them in for about three weeks, four weeks. It was helpful that it started with a huge rainstorm for like two weeks. So that helped us keep them inside. But like I said, those boys, they gone. They're what? out and about. <laughs> What do you do once they're exposed, I mean, to the outside world, to children you don't know? Do you just, you put them in a closet or you have a place you keep them? This is a mentoring podcast, right? <laughs> no, I mean, the nice thing is, like, I mean, of all things, the, the best part about it is like there's no baseball games. There's no all these after-school activities and the kids are just kind of free-ranged. And it's been so cool to see our neighbors. And so we see the same people and we've done some exercises and hand-washing although our seven-year-old wouldn't know how to wash his hands if uh, Mother Teresa taught him how. <laughs> but yeah, man, there's no closets, you know, it's nothing good. like that, but a lot of hand washing and hand sanitizer. So It's good. If CPS was listening, they they would have got you there, Gosh. but it's good. <laughs> That's not how I expected this to go. <laughs> it's okay. My mom doesn't even listen to this, so there's no way CPS does. <laughs> um, before we jump into the Relational Needs series, John, I'd love for you to share a little about yourself so listeners who aren't aware of who you are would have a reason to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So paint a picture for our listeners. Who is John Bauer? Well, the first thing I would say, and I probably wouldn't have said this a year ago because it would feel cheesy to my inner frat boy, but I'm a warrior priest. I've done a lot of work as far as unpacking identity because for a while there, who I was is really dependent on what I did as opposed to just understanding how God made me, calling you know, how I was wired, the gifts that I've been given. And I love the metaphor. I mean, people love stories. They love hearing. That's why we go to the movies and pay tons of money to sit in front of a screen, or that's why we watch Netflix or go 
watch a sports ball team play and like just jump up and scream when something miraculous happens that we're watching. And so I've kind of, I've come to understand myself as a warrior priest and just in that metaphor, it, it makes sense. I, I think that I have an innate desire to see people set free and I, I'm, I do better when I have something to fight for or people to fight for, to believe for, to encourage. And so really that metaphor kind of sums up a lot that I've learned. It's this idea that, yeah, I want to bring people in that are lost, looking lonely, hurting and broken, help them understand who they are, who God is. And then by God's good grace, send them out with a greater sense of purpose and passion. So they're free to really fully be human. But then I want to go do it all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, get some people healed whole, have them some, get them into a place where they have relational experiences with the Lord or with others and see how much that shapes them, heals them, forms them. And then I want to grab one or two else and then go out to the highways and byways and find uh, more ex-frat guys like me that were such huge tools that you would never imagine that they'd be a pastor uh, (laughs) later on in life. So I do enjoy that when people say, your pastor is who? John Bauer? I knew him in college. Why is he a pastor? So that more or less sums it all up. So warrior priest, practically speaking, uh, church planner, which means help start a church, uh, which is difficult in Dallas because you trip over churches on the way out of your neighborhood. And so trying to convince people that a church is needed is difficult. But been doing that for about eight years. But going back beyond that was I led a men's Bible study that kind of organically grew to be the church that we've got married to a beautiful lady that's way outside of my league named Casey. She's creative, wonderful, awesome. And last year, we started some businesses, which has been cool. So she's kind of started a, she hasn't kind of started, she has started a hat company and it's been a creative outlet for her. And so I've started that and I've started some coaching and consulting, which has been fun. And three boys, first one's adopted and then two bio boys. So all boys, she's a boy mom. And so that's been an adventure uh, and humiliating, (laughs) Um, but good. And yeah, so that's kind of a little bit about me and what I do on the daily. I love it. So really you you'd probably say that the warrior priest identity flows into every area of your life, not just as a pastor, but in your family as well, in your community. Yes. Um, could you could you just share what that looks like in your family? Well, man, that's a good question. A year and a half ago, I mean, here in COVID, it's day, right? What day is today? Well, it's day. So I'm not good with times and epochs of time. It was four score and seven years ago. I don't know. But about a year and a half, year, a year and a half or so, maybe two years ago, I was put on leave because I was just burnt out spiritually and emotionally. And I realized that my identity was so wrapped in doing. And so I was not a pastor for about six months. And so I was like, well, what do I do? And through that time, that's where this idea of warrior priest and a couple other things came out. And through that time, I realized that my doing was supposed to flow out of my being, like who I am would just affect what I do. And it didn't matter what my title was, what my role was. So as I started to gain more health spiritually and emotionally, I realized that I was walking in my identity and the natural part of who I am just flowed out no matter where I was. So it was Home Depot and and talking to people, paying attention to them, praying with them, whether it was with people at the gym or whether it was at home, who I was started to manifest or become apparent. And I was a lot more pleasant to be around. And so really like even with my son, most recently, we had some conflict, had some discipline and I had to repent. I had to apologize for some different things. And so when it flows well, when I'm really walking in who I am, 
it brings a lot of safety and security and identity to my family. So it's like this reminder. Uh, it's someone that's fighting for and believing for the best for my wife and going, no, babe, this is who you are. And I think one of the biggest shifts in that and how it manifests at home was this idea of desiring to be a team with Casey because I'm such a driver. I'm such a pusher. I want to lead and take a mountain. And I had this phrase, vision or die. But the problem is if people get in the way when it's vision or die, then they get in the way and they die. And oh, by the way, I died along the way a thousand deaths. But this shift came. It's like, I want to be a warrior priest with my bride. I want to be on the same team as her. And so that was a huge shift. So I, I, I think that's changed. And of course I don't, I go in and out of walking in my identity air quotes there. And, um, but when I'm walking in it, it becomes this leader. That's that priest side of it, that tender side of it, that kind of gets past the rough exterior and into the interior, which um, it's all about relationships. I mean, that's what mentoring's about. That's what business is about. It's all about relationships. And so when I'm walking in that with a deep sense of attachment and purpose, our family thrives. And when I don't, it's just, we're left with that warrior side and it just kind of wears everybody out, including myself. So that's, I think, how it manifests at home is, is the more I'm being who I'm made to be, the more life happens in my home. Mm. And granted, we've got three boys and lots of diapers and lots of womps with metal objects towards one another. So <laughs> sometimes life is life, as my son Jude says. So, well, anyway, wise dude. Well, I, I love, yeah, just the identity God speaking over you, John. And I, I would say that that's true. I think you are a warrior priest and I love the idea of being a priest just in the sense that priests are, are an office that connects people to God in some way, like the Old Testament. It's like mm -hmm. they're managing the sacrifices and keeping the tabernacle organized and ready to go to receive the people and to connect them with God. And then, I mean, Jesus is our high priest, and he is he's the one who makes the connection, the relational connection between us and the Father and breaks the divide. And then he calls us a royal priesthood mm -hmm. to, to go out and be ministers of reconciliation. And I, I think that that's... That's something that God wants to place in us is mm -hmm. this this priestly identity of which I think connects with the relational needs that we're going to discuss today mm -hmm. is just that really there is a desire to see relationships in in greater health and greater connection and we have we have a part to play within that and recognizing what our part is is really vital as a mentor what is what is your part in this relationship to create health in the life of a kid from a hard place and and recognizing what is not your role and and where where we cross into something that's not our job or not right. not what God expects of us is where we get into that place of the human doing not the human being mm. who who he's called us to be right so just to go back to that priest idea that priest metaphor and I don't know how many of the listeners are Christian or not, but the idea of the priest was all about presence. And so it you can get in the Old Testament, it seems really complicated, but their role was really to minister to God. And by that, I mean, be with him. It's, it was about presence and then minister to the people. And so it was all about presence. And the idea of how can a holy God dwell with people that are unholy, meaning his holiness is so good, it's so powerful. How can you be with someone that, it's like the sun, how can you, inhabit the sun unless something changes. But regardless, it's all about presence. And so when I think about the idea of mentoring, it's all about presence. It's all about being. 
and not really about doing. It's all about being with them in a way that actually connects to them. And, and, and the idea of attachment. Attachment is a deep emotional bond that endures across space and time. So I think the idea of mentoring, just carrying over that priest me- metaphor, is really about presence. I learned this from my granddad, who is basically one of the first megachurch pastors in Houston a long time ago. And he just told me, he's like, you just show up. Literally, the, the ministry of presence is just about being there. And so I think today and over these few podcasts, what we'll be talking about is like how you can be there effectively, because as we'll discuss, our brains are literally hardwired neurologically to connect to people like we are going to attach. We're going to connect to someone or something. And so we carry that idea into attachment, into connection uh, and connection and presence into mentoring. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty good segue into what we'll be talking about. Yeah, it's great. Well, we can't talk about everything in one sitting. So what we're going to do is break up this series into four talks. This first episode, we're going to be talking about the pain and potential within relational needs. So John, let me jump into these questions. Why are our relational needs foundational to mentoring relationships? For those people I've been tracking with, walking with, spending time with, I've had this this word that I just keep overusing and it's framework. So I think part of my goal is to help give people a, a new set of glasses or lenses to view themselves and view the world. And when we think about relational needs, I want to back up just a little bit and, and say, well, we all know we have physical needs. Like we need air and water and sleep from the Christian standpoint. We have spiritual needs. We need salvation, but oftentimes we get really confused with the idea that we need other people. That's the idea of relational needs, that unless we actually have healthy relationships and secure attachments, we're flat out not going to thrive. We're not going to grow in purpose and identity. In fact, it's going to inhibit or hinder who we are, what we're doing at work, at home, vocationally, recreationally. We are so hardwired for relationships, and we have these needs, just like air, just like water, that if they're not met, things start to go south. So, And this is difficult for those who are Christians because they think all they need is God. And there's some truth in that, but it can be overused to the point where they think they're uh, what the Robinson Crusoe of Christianity, just me and Jesus. But that just flat out doesn't work. It just mm-hmm. does not work. And just in my travels around the world, whether it's in, in Mongolia, whether it's in like a, a Latin American country, whether it's in the African American community or a upper middle class community, when we get to the heart of this message and when people can have their worldview jarred a little bit, they begin to unearth their own relational needs and begin to realize that, yeah, they're wired for relationships. They have these desires for connection and attachment. And so we bring all that to bear for good or for ill when it comes to mentoring. Mm. And so the question you had asked about, like our own relational needs are foundational to mentoring relationships. And so if I could really just encourage you to think about the fact that you actually have needs for relationships, whether it's through a spouse or with friends, it's just going to happen. And if those things aren't being met, what can happen is it becomes you're getting your own needs met in a kid, and that's that's not how it's supposed to work. And that area you're acting as a father or as a mother or as a mentor, you're acting as a someone who should be a few steps more mature in your uh, emotional development than them. 
And so it's like, if we don't have an awareness of our own needs. It's going to impact for, it's going to impact negatively how we relate to the kiddos that we're mentoring. And so, yeah, I think that's just a little bit of a framework. The idea that we have emotional needs, we have physical needs, we have like vocational needs, we have spiritual needs, but we just don't often think about the idea that we have relational needs. We feel them, but we don't acknowledge them as like something real or tangible. It's like, I don't know. I imagine every extrovert in in the world right now is recognizing their relational needs like they've never had before. Mm -hmm. And and it took a pandemic to right. reveal that. Right. That's like something that they really needed. Whereas all the introverts are like, this is great. Well, I would push back a little bit because <laughs> even the introverts are going, man, I can't wait. I did a wedding, a very small wedding this weekend, and I accidentally gave a side hug to the bride because she side hugged me. And that was the first person outside of my family that I'd did you just blame her for that? I did. I, I <laughs> mansplaining. Anyway, yeah, I think even the introverts are knowing that. We're starting to realize that idea. And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it is interesting to think about that if we have relational needs and we jump into a mentoring relationship, that that could possibly, the motivation behind wanting to become a mentor could be off. Like, because like what you said, that there may be something in us that's like, I have a relational need to be a mentor. I want to pour into someone like and maybe take pride in being a being a mentor or a sage or like the I don't know, like the Liam Neeson to Batman, whatever his name was. I don't I don't know, but in the movie. Liam Neeson. Yeah, like in the first Batman movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um sorry. But I was, I was thinking taken. I was I acquired a set of skills. <laughs> but yeah, I mean I I think if we haven't actually taking an inventory of what our relational needs are, maybe we're just operating from a place of getting them met without knowing what they are. And that could lead us to making poor decisions. Yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. So, uh, yes, a couple of them. First off, we get it, like you said in the beginning, we'll get into mentoring for some reason. It could just be altruism and we're just overflowing with self-giving love. Or it could have, it's out of our own story. Like, man, no one came in and, poured into me or my dad left. Therefore I'm, you know, like an inner vow. I'm never going to be like my dad. And so I'm going to do the opposite of it. And so that's not bad. It's a great motivator to change and to become something like a Phoenix transformation where we're becoming something more than what we were set up for. And so that's good. But like you said, without taking stock of that, uh, it can impair our ability to enter into their world. So a quick story would be about Case and I being foster parents. And so we had 10 kids in 10 months a few years ago. And we'd get babies and we'd get older kids and they were just precious. But they would come to us often in the middle of the night. And so you'd get a call and holy Moses, it's go time. And we had several girls that were aged from like four to five or six. Again, I don't know what day it is, so I don't remember all of those <laughs> things. But they each came in and they're just terrified but how they responded was differently one was in tears the other was kind of laughing hysterically and what they were doing in that moment like if i went to them and said hey look my job is to protect you i'm here to keep you safe it doesn't matter a hill of beans they're a kid and what they need in that moment is security they need to know shalom and that is not how can they trust you they're in this place that they don't know they don't recognize it they've just been ripped in most cases from their mama for some reason and they're heartbroken and their brain is in fight or flight. And for all of your great, I'm going to be a great mentor and everything else, it doesn't matter. At that moment, 
What they need is security and, and, and sympathy and empathy and, and comfort. And so that takes a long time to, to develop with them. And so Casey and I would do the work of really trying to provide security, which is God, it's just terrifying for these kiddos. And so I say that because just a few ideas of relational needs, like the first one I think about is attention. Like we want someone to pay attention to us. So if we go into, or oftentimes we do, if we go into a mentor relationship out of our own need, it's like we want that kid to pay attention to us, to approve of us, to validate us. And that's backwards. We're supposed to come into this with like somewhat of a whole heart, hopefully maturing so that we can actually give something to them, not wisdom, like you said, not advice, not goals, but just presence, just relationship. And so that idea of attention is leaving your world and entering into theirs. And oftentimes I deal with, whether it's rich, poor, as uh, Will Smith said, black, white, Cuban, or Asian, in his uh, hit, getting jiggy with it. Uh, it doesn't matter, man. They're, they're, they have this longing. Yeah. I'm like, did your parent leave their world, leave their job, leave their TV show, and enter into yours and just pay attention to you? Because mm. if that need didn't get met, it's being carried on to adulthood. Or security, peace, like you're confident that the relationship is going to be harmonious. And in foster care, that manifests. With these mentors, that could be manifest. Because a lot of times they've been left and they're wondering, is this person going to leave like everyone else has left me? And they're going to push hard. They're going to kick against it relationally to push every button to see if you're actually going to stay, if you're actually going to accept them no matter what they do. And you also find needs like approval. Like you just see me and accept me for who I am and not who I'm supposed to be. And that is hard because the kids are messy. You're a mess, whether you would like to admit it or not. And so being able to bring those needs to bear in a way that brings wholeness and security is very hard. It is not easy, specifically if you don't have awareness of what I would say is the need behind the deed. Like You don't act stupid for no reason. There's something, There's you're trying to gain something. It's giving your, you power, that behavior. For these kiddos that you're mentoring or the foster care kids, they're doing something to manipulate the room. And that sounds negative, but they're doing whatever they can do to bring safety and security. So if it means they're going to torment you, they're going to talk trash about you. If it's an older kid, they're going to do whatever they've learned to produce safety and security and to test you. And so if you don't have that framework of like, what is the need behind the deed? What's driving this kiddo? Because your facts, reason, and logic flat aren't going to help them. Mm. But that relation, that back to the, the, the metaphor of priest, the ministry of presence of being there, that kind of relational commitment that says, I'm here, man, or young man, or young boy, or whatever, or I'm here, foster daughter, foster son, until something changes, but I will be here. And that's, that's hard because it's a, people are messy. My friend always says people are messy. <laughs> and so it's difficult. And so it's helpful because when we were reminded that, oh, I have needs and they have needs, it helps us see them and their humanity and just not their behavior because the behavior will be a mess at times. Wow. That's really helpful. I, I love even just thinking about all of this within the heart of God of like how he, God wants to meet relational needs mm -hmm. and he doesn't, he doesn't operate outside of anything you just said. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't just teach people how to heal blind eyes and like raise the dead, mm -hmm. though we may like see those things as prescriptive and we can, we can do it and God's still doing miracles. But there are so many other things that Jesus is doing and it's all within relationships. Mm -hmm. It's all within seeing people. It's all within presence. Mm -hmm. And he, he's not, like that second nature to Jesus is to discern what the relational needs are within 
the people that he's serving mm-hmm. and to meet them and and to to step forward to do that. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have relational needs. Jesus is aware of his relational needs. He's the one that's always going to meet with the Father. He's the one that's always eternally been in the Trinity, mm-hmm. <laughs> like within relationship. And I, I mean, he chose to live with 12 dudes and he has a bunch of people following him. He has all these women financing his ministry. And I I think it's it's interesting when we have this conception of Jesus that's outside of rela- the relational needs kind of thought. But once you think about it in that way, you're like, wow, this is really ministry at its heart is relational. Right. And just that presence deal, just keep coming back to that. That's Well, when you look at this idea of being wired for relationships, you have kind of like the neurobiological attachment counseling which, by the way, if you all haven't checked out Karen Purvis, The Connected Child, or Loving Kids from Hard Places, you need to. woman passed away recently, but she was a bad woman. I mean, there's going to be like Mother Teresa, maybe Billy Graham, and her, and I'm going to be like cleaning their toenails in heaven. I mean, that's just the weight of who they were. So you can look at it from the, the neurobiological or the neurology of it, but if you look at it from the Christian worldview, you have to start with the Trinity. You have to start with the idea that God has eternally been in relationship and eternally been giving and delighting in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you look at Jesus, like I mentioned, attention. Attention is when you leave your world and enter into another's. And that's the whole idea of the Word became flesh and made his dwelling place. Back to the Old Testament, it's all about presence. So he left his world and entered into our world. And then you said Jesus had needs, and people don't like to think about that, (laughs) uh, specifically if you're fundamentalist. Um, But people don't like to think about that because, what, what do you mean God, the Son of God, the Son of Man would have needs? But at his baptism, which is this holy moment where you see the Trinity in action, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, and he hasn't done a thing. He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't cast out any devils. He hasn't saved anybody. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the pleasure and the delight in his personhood, not in his actions, happen. That's that being overdoing. So that's approval. Like the Father is approving him, approving of him in front of everyone. And then from that place of identity, Jesus goes out as the Messiah, as the anointed one, uh, to preach good news. And it was relational. And of course, he brought power and supernatural stuff to bear. But even in his healings, like the lepers, he touched them, and they were unclean. They couldn't be touched. Mm -hmm. And I I tell a story in the video that we did that will come out soon, maybe, but that we did together, Stephen. But my grandma, at the age of 90, 91, 92, and the old folks home, she just needed to be touched. I mean, she sat in a bed for the most part all day without anyone to touch her, and she just her tiny frail hands just holding my face, me holding her, giving her kisses and holding her hand. Those needs do not go away. And so these, some of these kids that you're going to interact with, they're not going to have appropriate touch. They're going to have been touched either in an abusive way, sexually or physically, verbally abusive, or even, which is just as bad as neglect, the idea of indifference. I don't love you. I don't hate you, but I'm just cold and callous. You do not matter. You're not valid. And so all of that is coming to bear when you're interacting with these with these kiddos. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of like the Christian worldview and also just starts to dive into the, how your brain is wired and how we are looking for attachment. We will attach to someone or something. Yeah. Well, let's jump into talking about child development because I I feel like that is when you talk about relational needs, everyone has relational needs, but what does that mean for the kid from a hard place who? has had those adverse traumatic experiences that may not be, they may not have bullet holes within them, but maybe there's gunshots around their home. Like they may not 
have necessarily been abused by their parents, uh, but maybe they've been neglected. And just thinking about if everyone has relational needs, how much more so does that place kids from hard places in a deficit? And I don't speak that as an indictment against kids from hard no, places, no, but the it's need behind the deed. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, can you, can you just talk about when those needs go unmet? How does that affect a child's development and the way they see the world? Right. So uh, the, we make sense of the world through stories and a lot of our training, Casey and I's training has come from things like tapestry, foster care, adoption, some different counseling that gave us this framework in our early part of our marriage. But stories are how we make sense of the world. So our first son was adopted, is adopted. And I, another powerhouse lady, Hope's Promise, shout out if you'll ever hear anything about them. They're in Colorado. Incredible women. I mean, these women are forces of nature. And I mean, that is the highest compliment I can pay to them. And so we were in a training up in Colorado because our son uh, was born in Colorado. And a, <laughs> a dude, an older guy who's had kids and was going to get into adoption and, and was kind of pushing back uh, against the, the lady that was training us. And he said, you mean to tell me that it's difficult for a kid that's you know, born and then adopted immediately? They're going to have attachment issues. Or they're going to have different issues. And she, with like a feather, dismantled this. It was incredible. And I was like, oh. It was like one of those memes that people post where people are like, oh, shoot, or something. Hashtag, I'm trendy. But in essence, what she said is when that baby is placed into an adoptive home, there's losses that have occurred already. He or she has lost his biological mother. His biological mother has lost his biological, biological child. And oftentimes people come into adoption from loss, like Casey and I did with miscarriages. So the relationship starts off almost on the wrong foot with loss. And it's this idea or this concept from people that talk about the attachment theory is that the mother in the womb, about three months, they start to develop an attachment. And again, an attachment is a deep emotional bond that endures across space and time. The mother is attaching to that baby that is growing within her. And that baby is attaching to his or her mama. The mom is providing security, shelter, food, comfort, those basic physiological needs. And that mom is attaching to this child. And so when that attachment is broken by placing that child in adoptive parents, loss happens. And so it's that idea that, man, even in the womb, we want to attach. And so you see that baby coming out. And then, you know, you and I were talking earlier about your, your newborn and how your favorite part is trying to see his eyes and to attach to him and, and to connect with him. And we are, everyone is starved for this. I mean, this is why when you walk into a room and someone smiles at you, the part of your brain that's relational is faster than your facts, reason, and logic. So you could see your enemy and they smile at you and your brain is going to hijack you and go, oh yeah, I, they're glad to be with me. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden you get back and say, well, this person did this, that, or the other, and I don't like them. But your brain is so wired to attach, it cannot help itself. It is going to attach. So when you come at it, either from an adoption standpoint or a mentoring standpoint, these kiddos are wired to attach. And so if they come from a hard place where there's been insecure attachments or anxious attachments or abuse or neglect, their their brain is firing, not in a holistic way, but rather in a fight or flight. They're basically in their subconscious going, man, as my fear center is operating, just think about the, the Buckingham Palace guards that are standing guard, mm -hmm. wondering, is this person gonna leave? Are they gonna abuse me? Are they gonna raise their voice? Is their hand gonna follow next and follow through with a smack? And all of that comes to bear when you look at these kiddos, like they are wired for attachment. And when they're not attached, 
then they start to learn behaviors to get attached to someone or to something. And there's going to be a lot of hindrances in those relational needs that are going to keep them from doing it healthily. And same for you, because these kids are going to trigger things in you that from your past, and it's going to be hard to go through and actually make those, you know, synapses connect that, that idea of intimacy, that idea of uh, security is going to be hindered unless your framework provides you with a lens to view that kiddo to where you're not looking at their behavior. Why are they acting like a fool right now? Well, A, because they're a kid. <laughs> and then B, because their brain hasn't fully de developed. But then C, if your brain is not, is not being cared for and nurtured and attaching in healthy ways, you're never going to get out of it. And this is why uh, there's a phrase I learned long times ago that there's a lot of boys who can shave nowadays. They're still... They don't know who they are. They don't know what's going on in their world. And they're basically, they've never grown up emotionally. And their behavior hasn't changed because they've not had these needs met. Their brain is still looking for something or someone to attach to, to approve of them, to provide security. And so if that happens for us that have somewhat normal families, how much more difficult will that be for kiddos that come from hard places? Because they long for someone to leave their world and enter into theirs. They long for security. And as a mentor, whether you're with them 45 minutes a week or an hour a week, that might be the only time that they're safe. That might be the only time they really have a sense of security and peace and wholeness. And so they're going to bring, you know, how many hours in a week are there? 127? I don't even know. They're going to bring hours of insecure attachment. In some cases, I'm not saying it's all that bad, but in some cases they're going to bring a deficit into your relationship. And so it's, it's so important to view, they don't give a rip. I mean, I learned this in sales. People don't care how much you know until they know that you care. Mm. They don't give a rip that you've been to seminary or you have a nice car or whatever. They just want to know, will someone see me? Will someone know me? Will someone accept me? And that is going to only, that's only going to be exacerbated by the fact that they're in a mentoring program because they're the problem. They have an issue. And it, for the most part, it ain't their fault because kids are supposed to be in a place where the mommy and daddy is securely loving them and training them up and, you know, correcting them when they get off the rails a bit. And all of that's going to come to bear in that relationship. So that hopefully gives a bit of a framework for how you can interact with them, knowing that there's a need behind the deed. Yeah, it's really good, John. Two thoughts came up as as you were talking. Think about like a baby. A baby has like those physiological needs that you you mentioned, and will cry to get them met. Mm -hmm. And that works very well. I've found out over the last month. Hmm. Shout out to you, Ben. I love you, man. You're awesome. When when a child gets older and needs go unmet, and usually we usually talk about the physiological needs of feeling like you have shelter, you have food, mm -hmm. and you have safety. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to relational needs, I think at least what you experience is like the, the reason neglect happens is because a, a child is longing for connection to be around you and that need has gone unmet for so long that the child's no longer looking for it and is isolating himself because he knows his needs aren't going to be met within like i, I imagine a, a a boy in our program who's constantly nagging mm -hmm. for someone to care about him and when that need goes unmet for an extended period of time the kid naturally learns oh okay like my need is wrong or my they don't necessarily think my approach is wrong because they're not thinking in that way of oh how could i be better about communicating my needs because kids aren't going to be able to communicate those things so i wonder if you have thoughts about when 
when we strive to get them met as a child and they go unmet, is there a an internalizing and something that that keeps kids from communicating their own relational needs? Mm-hmm. A couple of things that I think of as you're talking about. The first thing is is that they are communicating it. It just it may it may not make sense to us. They're always communicating it because like we will attach to someone or something. It's it's just a matter of who or what. Phone, Facebook, video games, pornography, drugs, whatever. And so as you're talking about that about about your own kiddo, like they're going to cry. That usually means they've got a diaper change, they're tired, or they're hungry. And that's really it. That's what first. I found out. Yeah, yes, that's, that's literally it. it. <laughs> but a really sad story is we've been through all of this adoption stuff. We would hear stories about, you know, kiddos in orphanages in Russia. They eventually learn not to cry. So they'll be, because they have so many kids there in a, uh, an orphanage that they stop crying out for their needs. So if it's like they have, a, they need a diaper change, they just stop and they'll sit in their filth for hours. They don't even cry for food. And that's terrifying. It's a very graphic picture and no one can really argue. Like, that makes sense. Like you're like they learn that no matter how much they cry, no one's going to pay attention to them. No one's going to enter into their world and care for them and touch them and attach to them, relationally, let alone physiologically. And they internalize that a hundred percent. And that's where you see contempt and you see like this self hatred. And I, I didn't. There's a great book for those of you who have ever heard anything about shame or, or dealt with shame. But shame is such a powerful emotion. We will do anything not to feel it. Mm. And it's almost irrational to the point where we will feel it before we think it. And there's a book called The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. Uh, highly recommend that book. It's pretty heady, but if you can get past that stuff, the story is great uh, and how shame impacts us. So that identity, that identity that I am not worth a damn takes in because no one took care of my diaper. Why would they take care of my dreams or my hopes or that desire to be touched? I'm not worth anything. Mm. And that is like a label over their head that they're going to carry into all of their life unless something changes. So I want to go back real quick to the idea of attachment. Attachment is that deep emotional bond that endures across space and time. We are wired to, ta- uh, to attach. And so what, what we interact with forms an attachment. What we interact with forms our attachment. So if those kids in the orphanage, like I said, if they don't interact with anything, that forms their attachment. And what we attach to forms our loves, like what we actually love and care about. And what we love forms our identity. And so we often look at the behavior and what people are attaching to, but those things and our behavior that we're wiring together with. So if it's just like our phone or video games or, you know, students that are good at uh, uh, academia or, or, or sports or sex or pornography, we attach to those things and they form our loves and those loves shape our identity. And so what does that have to do with these kiddos? Like if, if no one is coming in and speaking identity over them, meeting their needs, then they inherently start to think there is something wrong with me. There's something off with me. And that's that shame. Shame can be so toxic, so toxic. So they move into like superhuman, like, oh, I did something good, whether it's in video games or I got a rise out of the teacher. Or I'm like a rebel and everyone laughed at me or the girls like me and I can hook up and whatever else, or I'm just a prick and I push people away. Their identity is formed in that, and that's that kind of superhuman side of shame. But then there's always a crash. They come into the subhuman. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm not worthy of life. And that is going to drive everything they do, everything. Like, you don't act stupid for no reason, both you as a mentor and the mentees. There's a reason for it. And so I think it's important, uh, you know, often in Christianity, we focus on the behavior. Specific like sex. We just can't handle sex. What do we do with sex and sexuality and our desires and all this other stuff? So 
you know, if you have a person that has a porn problem, it's really just an intimacy problem. We're made for intimacy. So we focus on the behavior. Hey, stop that. And we don't look at the need behind the deed. Mm. That innate desire for intimacy is good. It's like we're wired for it. We're sexual creatures, but we don't know how to deal with it, specifically from a Christian worldview. And that's going to drive at us. So if we get in a relationship with mentoring, we try and fix the behavior, that's going to work for about two seconds. But if we start to see the need behind the deed, oh, what they really want is attachment. They want to connect. They want to know they're secure and safe. We start to see that need behind the deed. Then we don't focus on that negative behavior as much, but we get to the root of it. And that's when change really starts to happen both for us personally and then for these kiddos that we're mentoring. Yeah. That kind of hits at the the pain and the potential right. of relational needs, of, of recognizing any negative behavior that we're recognizing. There is a God-given relational need that's attached to it that's either going unmet or or was met in a unhealthy way. Right. And I, I think that that's, that's really powerful just to, to recognize that anything— that we're seeing that seems off, there's actually something something good underneath it. Yes. That's the reason yes. it's happening. That that changes your mindset as a mentor. Yeah, I just for a metaphor sense, because of again, stories. So back in the garden, they had two trees. They had the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And humans had a choice at that moment how they were going to get their needs met. And like we all tend to do, we return to our vomit and we choose the shadow. We choose that part of us that if we allow it, it will build hell on earth. And, and so it's so hard for us to think of needs as good because all we see is our terrible behavior. We see our lust or our pride or our anger. Uh, we see the seven deadly sins. We see our depravity, but we don't see that good need. Like sleep is good, believe it or not, or breathing is good or food is good. Attachment is good. Needs aren't bad or good. They're just good. They're actually positive, rather. They're not bad or good. They actually are good. But the problem comes in, like you said, the pain and potential when they're not met. So some of the needs I mentioned, attention, affection, comfort, security, approval, there's potential and then there's pain that happens from it. So if you start with the end in mind, people that get their needs met in the context of a healthy relationship where there's no triangulation or enmeshment, they tend to become, for the most part, healthy people. And healthy people tend to make good choices. And good choices, for the most part, lead to good outcomes. But when we see the painful outcomes, which is all we see on the outside, like for me, as the frat guy that I mentioned that was obnoxious, is because I just wanted someone to approve of me. And when you see the <laughs> jack wagon climbing up a bar uh, window after he'd been kicked out because I was just drunk and stupid and I want to do something so outlandish that my friends would be like, oh, he's so fratastic. A, that was, of course, stupid. B, I was intoxicated. But C, if you can see past all of that crud, you can see here's a young man that really needs approval. And he's willing to go to great lengths to get those needs met. That's actually courageous on one sense mm. and quite stupid on the other. But if you can see the need behind the deed, it humanizes a person like me. And they're not such a big jack wagon. And so with the pain and potential, if those needs are met, it tends to lead to right thinking. Well, mommy and daddy, pay attention to me. I'm worthy of attention. I really am okay. You don't get into that subhuman or superhuman of shame, but you're like, okay, I must be worthy of something because mommy or daddy or this mentor left their world and entered into mine. And then uh, on the flip side of that, if like going back to the Russian orphanages, my needs aren't met. Or when I express my needs, I'm beat, I'm neglected, or on horrible cases where sexual abuse happens, 
well, they have a need met, and the only thing I'm good for is some sexual satisfaction. You have it, it, that rejection, that criticism, that critique without con- context or without rather a connection moves us into wrong thinking. There's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And if you live with that mindset, you're going to act a fool. And it's almost determinism. It's almost that, that habit and that thought process. Your brain is neurologically following a path that is going to end in death. It's going to end in shadow, whether it's just poor life choices or something as dark as suicide or living in such a way that you're going to die because your behavior, whether it's drugs or alcohol or gambling or addiction, the end of that will be death. So when those needs are met, you have right thinking. And when those needs are not met, you have really poor thinking, which usually ends up in terrible outcomes. But there's this thing in between. And so that's where I want to talk a little bit about feelings and the pain and potential. In the Christian world, feelings get a bad rap. And we just, we, we can't envision anything better with it. We think of that like fact, faith, feeling train where your feelings are the caboose and they should be stuffed or neglected. And that works out about as well as a rat sandwich. Um, <laughs> on the other side, you can elevate them to a point of being godlike, which I get. But mm. one of my heroes in the faith is Eugene Peterson. And he said that feelings make for good, they're good liars. And someone tweeted that today. And it's the only thing I haven't liked that Eugene Peterson has said, but people take a little comment like that out of context. Mm. And then the thing that you put over your feelings is negative. They're bad. And feelings are positive in nature. And so when our needs are met, we have a positive expression or a healthy expression of emotions. So when our needs are being met, we have a healthy sense of who we are. Then we can express things like anger in a positive sense because anger is not bad. It just becomes toxic if we bury them alive because emotions Mm. buried alive never die. They become like zombies or World War Z or The Walking Dead, which I've never seen because I'm a pastor, but I did see World War Z. And they come raging out. But anger is good in the sense that it gives you power, emotional energy to use your voice, to express injustice and say, no, 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 I'm not being valued here. Stop it. Fear is not negative. It's we're so we're like hardwired to keep ourselves safe. Like you don't think when a car comes, you just get out of the way. There's a part of our brain that is actually attached to our spine. So if we see uh, even the outline of a snake before we think, oh, there's a venomous snake. I better move. We move. Our body reacts before we even think. And so I do that with cockroaches. Oh, well, I don't because I'm a man. (laughs) (laughs) See how you shame right there. Um, But anyway, the idea is that these emotions aren't expressed in a healthy manner it's usually because our needs haven't been met. We have had wrong thinking in those toxic emotions. We start to express them in an unhealthy way, and that brings shadow and death to those around us. And so the idea is when our needs are met, we start to express even those things that we'd normally call negative, anger, fear, shame, in an unhealthy way. But when our needs are being met, we can express them in a positive way. Hey, mentee or mentor, when you did this, I really felt sad. And I'm actually angry that you didn't do that or you didn't show up or you didn't do what you said that you did. And that's healthy. It's anger is okay. It's when it gets into that toxic side that it it becomes destructive. Same with shame, same with fear. And so when we express it in a healthy way, it usually leads to our needs getting met even better in a more healthy way. And if we don't get our needs met, then you really have no room for, from a Christian standpoint, the fruit of the spirit. You're never going to feel safe. You're never going to feel happy. You're not going to feel joy because you're going to be so full of the toxic emotions, which are buried alive. They never die. And then out of that place of our feelings, we are, like I said about shame, we will do anything we can to not feel it. So of course you watch Netflix and chill. Of course you drink too much. Of course you act outlandish because you want that shame and that pain to go away. And 
but when you act like a fool, your consequences tend to be enough to hopefully you will learn something different and you'll find a new way. Uh, Dallas Willard and divine conspiracy, you know, we often think about God as like this punishing God that's ready. He's out to get you. Mm-hmm. But Willard is like, look, the, the idea is that life's own natural consequences. Like if I get drunk and go driving, there's going to be some consequences to that behavior. And that should inform we need to change our behavior. But like I said, if your brain is so hardwired to keep on doing things, unless someone like a mentor comes in and enters into your world, in essence, helps you find and form a new pathway in your brain, it's almost like determinism, like you're destined for those unproductive behaviors and unproductive outcomes and negative consequences. Wow. Wow. I hope so. (laughs) I have had a lot of coffee, so we'll see if that translates. Uh, I I feel like you covered feelings and emotions and their connection to relational needs. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I'll ask this last question. Yeah. But I also, I wanted to ask, I, I've been thinking about social media mm-hmm. and how, I mean, mo- most people think about coping mechanisms as like, well, you drink or you smoke because of your stress. And that's what a coping mechanism is. And we don't necessarily move that concept into all of life and all of our relational needs and everyone, not just, it's not just drunks, it's kids, it's single moms, it's moms in Highland Park. Like we all have coping mechanisms to try and survive, like what you said, to avoid the void, like Mm -hmm. that sense of something's off. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about social media as this, I don't know, it's kind of like a stock portfolio of relationships in that kind of how you, you diversify your stock portfolio is, well, I want to have investments in a lot of different places so that if something tanks, I'll be okay because I have my investments diversified. Well, how social media kind of works is like, well, I have relational needs, but I don't want to depend upon one or a few people to actually meet those needs. I'd rather have a thousand friends validate me on a semi-regular basis by the things that I show them, like I curate for them to see about my life and them give me feedback and that makes me feel great. And I I just, I think about for our kids, particularly, I mean, we have some of our, our boys, they're, they're liking our pictures on Instagram. Like they're already on Instagram and they're, they're eight years old. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways I'm thinking just that that social media and the internet is becoming this place where really it's it's pronouncing that we have unmet needs, mm-hmm. but we're we're trying to protect ourselves of of trying to make a thousand little connections rather than depend upon a few people like I mean for generations I mean for every generation besides ours, everyone's dependent upon their familial identity for that level of meeting your relational needs as like a primary place where those are met. Now we're getting to a place where that's, that's like the exception to the rule mm-hmm. that people are, are looking for their relational needs to be met outside of the family. And maybe that's just a Western like trend, but I do think that that's, that's an interesting thing that, is prevalent within our culture and even more so probably within kids from hard places in the West. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is in like the 19, 
I guess the boomer generation, so like the 50s after World War II, the nuclear family became like a thing, but with people moving to the suburbs or they're moving out of the country and into the city for work or for industry, the extended family got cut. And so you would have grandmas and aunts and cousins all around you that helped shape and form and speak identity over you. And as we got separated, very, very Western for sure, that, that began to be this place where you were dependent on that nuclear family. But if, if dad's working and mom's got three kids, she's super, you know, she's super stressed or whatever else. And so you didn't have grandma there to, to, to love and to help pay attention. And so you see that in Eastern cultures for sure. And I would consider like the Hispanic community, Latin American community, a lot more Eastern than Western. And then you throw in like divorce and all that other stuff. I think that kind of expedites the, the kind of the problem of not having that familial identity. And then we're like on the greatest experiment that the world has ever seen like the, the rate of information, like from the Gutenberg press to the internet, it's just only expanding. And our brains are like the, the testing ground and no one's really seen a result of it. They're just starting to see some stuff with pornography and how, how much that warps you because how much information you could consume from a sexual standpoint. But then you talk about like virtual signaling and, and posting something to get a rise or to have, you know, identity politics, whether it's left or right. It begins. What it starts that whole problem with what you do versus who you are, and then you're a mile wide and inch deep, and you're left not being known by anyone or anything, and it's more about who you do, or rather what you do than who you are. And I, I think it's a massive social experiment that we have no idea how far reaching the consequences are. And I find myself sucked into it, bro. Even like the idea of like the need behind the deed, I'm like I kind of want to take a picture and post it to social media because you know I'm trying to grow my brand or whatever else. But I'm like I just want approval. Mm-hmm. Like, do I have anything to say that's worth a darn that you people listening are like, I would be validated if like you said, hey, can John come speak? Yes, I can. I'm really good at it. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so that's even driving me in this. I'm like, why don't I take an Instagram photo and snap it and be like, well, I'm I'm podcasting with my favorite mentor, trainer, curator, <laughs> Stephen freaking Murray, the, the velvet glove, the feather glove. Anyway, so yeah, I, it's it's a massive social experiment that who knows where it's how it's going to play out. But we are literally like attaching to our phones and to people that we don't know because we did something cool or we looked a certain way mm-hmm. and we love it. And it shapes our identity. So if we interact with the left or the right, or if we interact with athletes or models or people that like land cruisers like I do, then that's like informs my behavior. I am shaped by that. I want to attach to something. I want identity. And, you know, close to 40, it's still driving me. So I, I mean... The kids that are 13, 8, and younger, I am like, like our kids are not getting phone. I didn't get a phone until I was 23, and I was on the tail end of it, and it was a flip phone. You know, I had Worm <laughs> or whatever, or Asteroid on it. It was worse than Frogger or whatever I played on the first PC we ever had at school. So anyway, man, yeah, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but uh, that's like, we have no idea what the consequences of that are going to be, and we're just starting to see the effects of it even now. Yeah. So... That's good, man. I, I I think it is. It's necessary to to talk about the context in which right. kids are growing up in, and even if everything is is healthy, that relational needs, it's so easy to get into a toxic place of how you're getting those met, and if you don't have key relationships where someone's investing in your life and you feel that they're getting onto your level. They're like seeking to see you, to make you feel safe, to soothe your pain. Like all, all of those things that 
it's it's a it's a minefield mm-hmm. of that that adults are trying to navigate with difficulty not just kids so we should probably have a another podcast about mentoring and social media and i'm i'm probably not your guy for that but i just <laughs> I can kind of sense there's something going on there. I just, I'm like, oh my gosh, because I get so sucked into it as well. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, Last question. Every mentor wants good outcomes for the kids they mentor. That would be really weird if they didn't. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess if a sadomasochist was like a mentor, then that may not be the case. There's probably some out there. Probably. But the one thing that's difficult to control is outcomes. Mm -hmm. Like, I cannot control what's the decisions that my mentee right. is going to make. He is responsible for himself. Um, kind of like Henry Cloud would say, I'm responsible to him, not for him. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it's it's good to acknowledge that we're not responsible for outcomes. And like the language that you hear people say all the time is like, we're tossing seeds and we toss seeds and wait to see what happens. And I like, I like that. I don't know if you'd call that an, an analogy. Is that an analogy? I guess. Or an illustration? Metaphor, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that metaphor, but it also, it's too simplistic. It's like, surely there's a better place for me to throw these seeds. And sure, surely, like, there's a time for me to throw them. And, like, recognizing that there are a lot of contextual, chronological things that need to happen that could be the a better mentor is better at throwing seeds at the right time, placing them in the right places that would cause flourishing. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about how mentors, when they approach relational needs, how do we, un- how do we tap into the potential of our mentees? What, where are the best places for us to throw our relational need seeds? If that makes sense. That's a really good question, Stephen. I'd have to think on that one more to give a good answer, the initial thought I, I come to mind and think is we come with all of these kind of delusions of grandeur. I hate to say it, but I, the first thing I would say is you, all of your expectations are going to go unmet. And it, you think, like you said, you can't control outcomes. So I, I think humility is really, really needed. And Jesus is the best example of it. I found that even with my eight on the Enneagram and command on the strength finders, um, humility suits me really, 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 really well. And in foster care and pastoring and coaching and mentoring, I find that when I come, I start with the end of myself and I come to with a place of humility, like I'm here to serve and not to be served or to lead, that it goes a heck of a lot better because I cannot tell you how many times I sit down with someone who's like, hey, tell me about foster care, about about pastoring or about coaching or about mentoring. And they've got so many dreams and so many hopes and they're good, but reality is going to set in and it's going to be shattered. And so if you can get that on the front end, which nobody can, (laughs) just remember, it's not going to go well. There's going to be conflict. That's what makes any story good is it doesn't go well. Something goes wrong. The ring goes to the bad guys. The force awakens, the bad side or whatever or Thanos snaps his finger. Without conflict, life is pretty meaningless and pointless. And mm-hmm. so just know on the front end that you're there to serve and and it's going to not meet your expectations. You're going to be disappointed in yourself and them and the program and the person that's like supposed to be coaching you and mentoring. All of it is going to disappoint. That's very cynical. 
But then I would end with a positive note on this is back to the priest, the ministry of presence. I have a story of a friend who was mentoring, discipling a guy, and he was on the brink of suicide. He sent him an email, and for all intents and purposes, he was about to end his life. My friend didn't get the email for a bit. This is back before texting was really powerful. When he got it, he left his world, went to this guy's apartment, was banging on the door. The guy didn't answer, and he went around to the window in the apartment and had a brick and was about to throw it open, to throw the brick through the window and open it up. And the person who sent the note said, what are you doing? He says, I'm about to throw the brick to check on you and just to come be with you. And I think that sums up the idea of presence. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't, they didn't get out of the shadow overnight. I mean, these kids, it's not going to take three weeks of your gracious presence to see them healed and set free. They didn't get there overnight. They're not going to get out of it overnight. But if you can come up with the idea that presence, presence is more important than doing. Being is greater than doing. Being with them and bringing your presence as best you can just to leave your world for a minute, for an hour, and enter into theirs. And sometimes it's going to be silent and you're just being present with them. And eventually that sense of attachment is going to come. But it's not going to be without disappointment, heartache, shattered dreams, shattered expectations for what it could look like, your own stress from life going, oh gosh, I've got all of this junk going on. But if you can see the need behind the deed and remember that presence is more important than performance, it's a, it's a hell of a start, I would say. Thanks for listening to today's episode with John Bauer. Next week, we are going to continue our discussion on relational needs. Uh, we're going to discuss a concept John trains couples, families, mentors in called the emotional cup. So we're going to talk about the, the stuff that we stuff and what that leads to. So be sure to check us out on our website, youcanmentor.com, as well as check our show notes so you can learn more about how you can connect with John Bauer and what he's doing. He, well, I wonder if you would inform what I say at this, this point. Do you want me to encourage people yeah. to your website? Can I, what is, what's the? Uh, the website is jsbauer.com. And that's part of the business side that we had, Casey and I both had a desire to do. And so it, really the idea of the website and what I do specifically is kind of help people unpack a little bit of who they are, who God is, and then what they're to do. And I have this terribly unique gift of like helping people face a pain or a fear and then out of that find purpose and identity and meaning and then come with like a lot of practical steps just to live. And so it's not just for Christians, but for non-Christians. And, but that's like my MO is like, I want to live and I want others to live because life's too short to not really live. And I mean like a full wholehearted life. So that's kind of my driving sense. But yes, please go check it out. I don't have an Instagram page, but jsbauer.com backslash just kidding that's it just jsbauer.com <laughs> okay well yeah check out jsbauer.com in the show notes uh thank you so much for listening subscribe send this to your mom or someone you know is interested in mentoring we'd love to hear your feedback so uh yeah we'll see you next week